morning, everyone. I'm Joe Hammond. I am the uh, director for youth ministries here at EBF. Am I, my mic? Let me just let's just get this right now. Okay, we're good. Sorry, I'm the director for the youth ministry here at EBF, um, and I, I'm really excited. I get to preach out of First Samuel and carry the series forward. We're preaching out of First uh, Samuel chapter four today. It's an action-packed one. It's a doozy. And, uh, and so I'm eager to jump right in, but let me open this up in a word of prayer first, okay? Father, we, uh, we have a lot going on in our lives. We have a lot of issues. We have a lot of problems. We have burdens, and we carry those issues with us. We take those into our relationships, and we even take those into our relationship with you. And God, uh, I know that we are guilty of, of uh, pretending that you are somebody that you are not. Lord, trying to manipulate you, trying to use you for our own good. And God, I pray that today we would see your word, that you would teach us something about yourself, and that we would come to understand um, who you are, what you want from us, Lord, and that we would have the courage and the determination to really seek you out, Lord, and to get to know you. So we pray that today would be beneficial in our understanding of you. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. So our chapter, uh, for 1 Samuel chapter 4, is a story within a much broader story. Israel is undergoing quite a major transition. Um, they are looking for leadership. They are presumably trying to establish themselves as a glorious, bona fide nation. Uh, pretty soon we're going to see them asking God for a king, uh, because they, they're sure that that's what they need to be this nation that they want to be. And, uh, and we will see God grant them that wish. Um, and, uh, and albeit hesitantly, uh, and, and we're going to see how he, that unfolds. And he's going to use Samuel, the subject matter of this book, uh, to appoint that king. And so last week left us off with God raising up Samuel, calling him to the ministry of being a priest and, uh, and, and being a leader for Israel. But before we go on, before we go any farther with this, God is going to have to make good on some promises that he made to Eli, the sitting priest for Israel. See, Eli and uh, his sons, because priesthood is a family thing, it stays in lineage. So if your father's a priest, you're a priest, your kids are priests. And uh, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, happen to be horribly corrupt. They're awful priests. They're terrible people. And they've been abusing the system. So God made a promise. We saw this happen in the last couple of weeks. God made a promise to Eli. He was going to end Eli's ministry and his family's ministry as priests. And he was going to kill his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He was going to kill them on the same day by the sword. And so we're going to see God make good on that promise in rather spectacular fashion. But before we dive into the scripture, I want to ask a question for you. Do you ever find yourself watching, uh, like having a favorite celebrity, right? Like an actor or a, uh, a musician of some sort, and thinking to yourself, if you watch that celebrity, man, I think we'd be really good friends if we ever met. I think we'd get along really well. Like, I think we'd be really, we'd be tight. Like, if they, if they got to know me, like, we'd connect, we'd, we'd, we'd get along perfectly well. Mine's a guy named Chris Pratt. He's an actor in uh, Parks and Rec. And he, I, I find him absolutely hysterical. I can never stop laughing at whatever he does. And I like to think that if we ever got together and hung out, he would love me. And we'd be tight friends. Like, we'd get along so well. He would totally get my jokes. 
and I, we'd have a great time together. Or have you ever met somebody, and maybe you just saw them from a distance, or maybe you met them briefly, and for whatever reason, they kind of rubbed you the wrong way? Like for, for somehow, you just right off the bat just didn't really like them very much, only to find out later on that as you get to know them, that they're actually totally delightful people. And you you even become better friends and and develop a good relationship eventually. But for some reason, you had them made out to be some of their not. And so I want to ask a question. The serious question is, if we're being honest, do we ever do that with God? Do we ever make observations from a distance? Do we ever see him and kind of pay attention and make our observations and make some bold assumptions and deceive ourselves into thinking that we know him better than we actually do? Are we guilty of making God into something that he isn't at all? Just because we don't know him well enough, we think we do, but we we haven't gotten there yet. Israel definitely did that in this case. Let's start off. I'm going to read starting with verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So there's some things here in this battle. We don't know a lot. We don't know who started this fight. We don't know if it, who picked the fight, who's challenging who. We just know that they have met together and they're going to have a battle, and they do. Um, and Israel gets bested in round one. Um, we do know that this is not something that's been called for by God. Israel, God didn't give in Israel instructions to go into battle. He didn't lead them there um, because it says nothing of the sort. Um, we also know that, uh, that Israel's not surprised. Nobody gets attacked by surprise in this case. They know exactly what they're getting into. Um, and Israel and, and the Philistines, they have a long-standing relationship, really a rivalry. That's been going on for a long time, and it will continue to go on. These are the same Philistines that Samson uh, killed a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. And then after they captured him, you know, he collapsed the pillars and took down the structure and took out 3,000 Philistines along with himself. And, uh, and later on, we're going to see David, a young David, flee to the Philistines for help because Saul's going to kill him. And, uh, and so David goes to the Philistines. The Philistines reject David. Later on, when David becomes king and has his army, he goes back and conquers the Philistines. So these guys have a rocky relationship for, for centuries. And, uh, and so and today is just like one event out of, out of many. So Israel gets defeated, as we saw, in round one versus Philistines. And the thing is, they're surprised by this. Even though there's no indication that God gave them any instructions, he didn't tell them to go there, he didn't tell them to fight, he didn't promise to to give them the victory. They're surprised when they don't get the victory. They were expecting this to work out for them. And so instead of backtracking, they decide to 
doubled down on this one and, uh, and really bet that God is going to give them the victory by going and grabbing the Ark of the Covenant and bringing that into battle with them. The Ark of the Covenant, as we, if we remember from Exodus, after Israel was you know, fled from uh, or freed from Egypt, and they're in the wilderness during, at Mount Sinai, God gave them instructions to build a tabernacle, to build the Ark of the Covenant, um, among other things. And so, and they did. The Ark of the Covenant was like a four, roughly four by two and a half foot wooden box, covered in gold, two cherubim mounted to the top of it. And inside of it, it would held, at least for some time, it held the, uh, the stone tablets that um, compiled the Ten Commandments, um, among some other important artifacts for Israel. And, um, and so the Ark of the Covenant is, is extremely precious to them because not just does it hold important artifacts, but the Ark of the Covenant is meant to represent the presence of God with them. Extremely important. That the, the, the holder of the Ark of the Covenant it represents the presence of God uh, with them. And as they understand, what they think that means is whoever holds the Ark holds the power. That's their understanding. But let's go on and we'll see what happens. Starting back up at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought the ark, brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons Eli of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. So the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they leaned out, learned that the ark of the Lord had come to camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews if they have been to you. Be men and fight. We know that God has made a promise to Eli that he's going to kill Hophni and Phinehas on the same day. We know that Hophni and Phinehas are priests. That means priests are job. Their job is to protect things like the ark to protect the rituals and the ceremonies of Israel. And so when we see Hophni and Phinehas allowing the ark to go, um, that's not supposed to happen. They're supposed to protect the ark, and they're supposed to be the ones. If anybody is going to put a stop to this ridiculous scheme of taking the ark into battle, it should have been these two numbskulls. They should have been the ones that stand up and say, this is wrong, this is not what the ark is for. And so they should have been the ones to stop. Instead, they're on board with the plan. They go with it, as priests should, um, and they go off into battle. And then we see when they arrive at camp, everybody erupts with shouting. And, uh, and, and this is kind of a strategic move, you see, because um, they, they know what happened back in Jericho. They know what happened with, uh, in Gideon's conquest. They know that when they, they marched around Jericho, and at the end, in the last march, they sounded the trumpet, everybody screamed and yelled, and the walls fell down, they were able to take over Jericho. They've seen this happen before, and in their minds, they think, if we just recreate this, if we just recreate all these circumstances that happened before, surely God's going to give us the victory. We have the Ark of the Covenant leading the way. 
I mean, what would happen if we didn't win? How bad would that make God look? He has to protect the Ark of the Covenant. And so what happens, though, Israel does succeed with all their yelling and shouting in the Ark of the Covenant. They do succeed in frightening the Philistines. They were legitimately scared now because they knew something was up. They, they heard about God. They knew they had the Ark. Um, but, uh, but it backfires because instead of fleeing, instead of laying down and rolling over, instead the Philistines decide they're going to man up. They're going to fight harder and fiercer than ever before. Like they've got nothing left to do. They are really going to give it now. They're going to fight with everything they have because the last thing they want is to become slaves to Israel. They're going to fight harder than ever. That's a terrible backfire for Israel. Picking back up at verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled. Every man to his home, and there was a, great, a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now Israel has gone from embarrassment to total and complete humiliation. This is a total disaster for them. The ark has gone, like they've lost the ark of the covenant. And as far as Israel thinks, the ark, whoever holds the ark holds the power. So they've lost the battle and they've lost the ark of the covenant. So now as they understand this glorious bona fide nation they're supposed to be establishing, or they're trying to establish themselves as, is, is washed out in this one terrible event, this total disaster for them. And the irony, though, the irony of that is that when Israel thought they had God on their side and he, was gonna, he had to give them the victory, God was quietly fulfilling his promises in their defeat. Hophni and Phinehas, we're dead. Same day, by the sword, just as he promised. Eli's ministry and the lineage of Eli's ministry, over, done, gone. Samuel is going to take over as the spiritual leader for Israel and the ark. Well, it's true. Whoever holds the ark does hold the power. And even though it's now in the hands of the Philistines, it never leaves the possession of God, and we're going to find that out. We're going to see how he brings that back to Israel. Verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. By the way, they estimate that run from, from the battlefield to Shiloh was roughly 22 miles. So it was a long day for that guy. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. For his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news appeared, answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of the God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over, backward from his seat by the side of the gate. 
and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. This is a very dark day in the history of Israel. It's a very gloomy story. It's a very terrible disaster and, and amazingly depressing. We have Eli who is old and blind and feeble. Horribly worried about the, the fate of the ark because the reality is he probably realizes he's a priest. It was their job to, to look after the ark and now it's at risk and he knows what is at risk with the ark going into the battle. We see him portrayed as sitting down. And the interesting thing is we also see him portrayed as sitting down when we first meet him in chapter 1. That he's actually portrayed as sitting down a lot. And it kind of suggests this passive leadership of Eli. He couldn't control his, friends, or his, his sons. He couldn't rein them in. He's sitting down at these crucial times. Of course, he's really old, so he can't sit down or can't stand up for very long anyways, I'm sure. But he's portrayed as sort of this passive leader. And, uh, and it's that passive leadership that no doubt allowed for the abuse and mistreatment of the ark and, uh, and how it wound wound up being dragged into battle and being captured. Feeling the gravity of this failure and realizing the impact that it's had on the fate of Israel, Eli just falls over and dies. He's got nothing else to do but fall over and die. And then this day gets even darker. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending to her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she didn't answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The birth of Eli's grandson, the fact that his bloodline will continue on, even though his ministry won't, uh, doesn't offer anyone any consolation at all. Their family is totally disgraced uh, because they're the ones that are allowed for this to happen. And even Israel's, Eli's grandson, Ichabod, whose name literally means inglorious, without glory, He's going to always live in the shadow, marred by this catastrophe for Israel. And we'll see once again, as has been the case over and over and over again for Israel, God is going to have to intervene in order to secure the future for Israel and his chosen people. And we'll see that happen later on. But it's fair for us, I think it's important that we ask ourselves the question, what does it stop us from making the same mistakes Israel did? How do we avoid the disaster of trying to, as I would call it, reinvent God? That is, make him into something we'd rather him be instead of what he rather is, actually is. How do we avoid making that mistake ourselves? And are we guilty of that? And I want to offer two steps on how we can avoid this life. Avoid making God out to be something. Avoid trying to force God 
into being what we want him to be, to doing our will, and how do we be people that do his will instead? Step one, we seek to know God. We have to seek to know God. Our job as Christians is to seek to know and understand God at all costs. Not just to seek out the answers to our questions, not just to seek the circumstances to happen the way we want them, but to seek to know him better, to seek a deeper, more intimate, more close relationship with him. To try to understand life through his eyes. Just making observations about God, just seeing historical events and assuming that's going to be the case for us, doesn't constitute a real relationship with him. Seeking to know God means recognizing our own tendency to reinvent God, to make him into something other than what he is. For example, and, and, and this might happen, this, maybe this is the case for you, that sometimes you ever find yourself praying and realizing that the majority of your prayers are asking God for things or asking God for make things to be the way you want them to be, requesting that all these different things, like at, trying to manipulate your situations. You even find yourself using manipulative language with God, trying to convince him into what you're hoping he'll do for you. Or do you, in your, the circumstances of your life, try to manage things, try to orchestrate things, and force it so that surely God is going to make this work out for me? Because if he didn't, what kind of God would he be? What, what kind of God would let this happen? And so trying to manipulate things and make it happen and expect God to do what you want him to do. And perhaps it goes without saying, but seeking to know God means knowing his word and studying his word. And when I say studying his word, I don't just mean having frequent and consistent quiet times, you know, reading the Bible daily. I think that's so important for us. Um, and I think that's true. But I also want to, when I say study word, I want, to, I want to talk more about not just quantity, but quality of studying. And so I ask, how are your biblical interpretation skills? How good are, you as, good are you at studying and interpreting Scripture and understanding what it means when you read it? When you read it, are you kind of just picking out little bits and pieces, or are you really trying to understand the whole of Scripture, trying to dig deep and understand everything that it has to say? Because it all works together. And I don't think God affords us any excuse of skipping over some parts uh, just because we don't know enough, just because we're, we're ignorant and don't understand them. I don't think God gives us that freedom to do that. I think he expects us to know his word. He did make it, write it for us after all. And one thing, one way I think we can evaluate is our scripture reading, if we're doing a good job of reading the Bible, if we are understanding it, I think is that to ask yourself the question, when you read the scripture... Are you experiencing conviction? Experiencing conviction, does it just affirm you and inspire you and make you feel good? Which it will from time to time, of course. But when you're reading the Bible, every once in a while, it really should cause a struggle. It really should point out sin in your life. It should correct you. It should identify from time to time that you are totally and completely wrong about what you previously thought or did. 
And now you have to change right away. That's what conviction is. And that's what Scripture does for us. If we are reading it honestly, we will read through Scripture and we will, we will struggle with the, the pain that it causes in our life because it's going to uproot everything for us. It changes the way we understand God. It changes the way we understand ourselves. It changes the way we understand our lives. And so when we read Scripture, are we experiencing that conviction? Is it, is it struggling? I, one of my friends said, the Bible should be like a really good cup of coffee. It should mess you up inside every time. I, I, I agree with that. I like that. A, for coffee and also for Scripture. I think when we're reading Scripture, we should be experiencing that conviction. And now there's resources that I think that will help us. Because we need to find out what's missing. How do we understand the Bible better? We should be constantly trying to study and read the Bible and understand what it means. And there's things out there that will help us. Because just reading it alone, there is some things that we are not going to understand. There are things that we're going to miss. So there's things like, uh, like commentaries that walk through Scripture verse by verse, passage by passage, that explain it by people who are way smarter than us and have done the research and will explain the scripture to us, and it's totally legitimate to go and ask a commentary what the heck this verse means. And there's other things too, like, like uh, Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias that compile information about any given subject into one spot. So that if you're coming reading scripture and you come across something that you're not totally understanding, like transfiguration or apostasy or, you know, some theological or even historical event that you don't really understand, you can look it up and it'll tell you the answer. And that, that understanding is going to help you understand what the verse is talking about, what this means. There's another, there's a book, I actually want, I want to give, offer a book recommendation today. And so it'll pop up on the screen, there it is, Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks and uh, William Hendricks. This was hugely influential for me when I was going through Bible school and, uh, and learning how to study the Bible myself. Um, this one taught me so much. Um, and so I offered his recommendation because I found it so practical that every time I was going to read through this book, it taught me really a whole different perspective on how to look at Scripture. And it was really easy. It was really easy to understand the book. It was really easy to apply it to the, to the verses I was reading. Um, and it, what it does is it teaches you stuff about like different principles for reading Scripture. How to know when something is meant to be literal. How to know when something is meant to be figurative. How to know if this applied in an old culture. Or how does it still apply in our culture today. Or how to, how to read you know, Old Testament narratives. Or how that's different from a New Testament epistle. And all these different things. Like it teaches you how to look at those things and read those like a scholar or somebody who can understand what it means. It's practical. It's helpful. Seriously, if it it helped me, it'll help anybody. And there's other things that we can do too. There's other things I want to recommend um, to study the Bible better, to dig in deeper. When When you're reading scripture and you highlight those inspirational verses, that's fine. But maybe consider highlighting the ones that are totally confusing and you don't understand at all. So that you have to go back and Look up and find out and do some research. Investigate what this verse means. Maybe there's something important that you're totally missing. To go back and highlight those stuff and, and, and try to dig in deep and understand or ask questions, writing questions into the margin of your Bible. What is this? I don't understand this. What does that mean? Or circle it because it's, who knows? And sometimes it's, it's confusing. Sometimes it even 
raises more questions than it answers for you, but I do believe that even in the research, even in the digging in and the process of seeking to understand the Bible better, that you will encounter God on a deeper level than before. Studying Scripture. I would also recommend, if you know what Pastor Jason is going to preach on next Sunday or any Sunday, to go, to go ahead and read that passage beforehand and even try to interpret it for yourself. Write down what you think are the application points. And then when he preaches it, you can compare your notes and decide if, and, and, and try to understand if you had it right or wrong and compare the two. It's good practice for us to study Scripture for ourselves and to, to formulate our opinions, our theological principles, our ideals, our values after we've studied the Scripture. So in studying God, we will get to know him better and that we will encounter him in his word and his message to us. So we seek to know God. And the next step that I want to offer you today is that we seek to obey God. Because as we study scripture and as we study God and seek to know him, he's going to raise some issues in our lives. We're going to learn about some things that have to change. And so it's up to us to take that next step and to obey him, to make the changes that God demands of us. Obedience means accepting correction and confrontation with grace and humility instead of a posture of arrogance and defensiveness. When you get confronted on sin, do you quickly go to try to justify your actions, try to explain yourself or excuse yourself? Being obedient to God is leaving room for the fact that you, were, you just might be completely wrong. That you might have misunderstood what God meant or what God wanted and need to change course immediately instead of entrenching ourselves deeper into our own ideals or our own opinions. Obedience is putting things in place in your life that are going to hold you accountable. It's being proactive in the pursuit of God and affording ourselves no more excuses. It's looking for principles in Scripture that are missing from our lives and putting them into practice right now. It's accepting the fact that we have so much more to learn, so much. And instead of being content to just get by and be a little bit better Christian than the other guy, it's committing every aspect of our lives to being conformed to the will of God. It's fighting when God says, fight. It's surrendering when God says surrender. The better we know God, the better we will know how to obey him. Don't make Israel's same mistake. Seek to know God first. Seek to obey God. Change, correction, change direction when you experience correction, when you realize you're wrong. And so I asked the same question that I asked in the beginning of, of the message. Have you somehow made observations and, and made assumptions about God and sort of created a God that isn't there? Have you, have you misunderstood God thinking that you know him better than you actually do, that you're closer to him than you actually are, and instead you put up the defenses so that you can carry on your agenda, your plan, what you want to do? We have to come to terms with who God is. And we maybe even acknowledge from time to time who he isn't. He is a God of judgment. He's a God of peace, hope, and love. 
He's a God who hates our sin, and he wants it out of our lives immediately. He is not a God who wants us to have everything that we desire. He's not a God who guarantees success or promises that life is going to be always good for us. God is unpopular. He does not agree with our opinions, or at least that many of them. And he doesn't afford us excuses for our unfaithfulness to him. This is the God that we claim to love and worship. He keeps all of his promises. He keeps his promises of forgiveness and help. And he also keeps his promises of judgment and punishment. So when you open your Bible, when you go to God in prayer, I would encourage you maybe just to consider asking him, who are you and what do you want from me? Don't be afraid to realize you're wrong and to change your mind and to to change the direction of your course. Because you realize that this is not right. This isn't what God wants. Seek out the person that, that God is. Seek out the person of God. Seek to care about the things that he cares about. To value the things that he values. And let go of your own expectations of what you're owed or how God ought to behave. And commit yourselves to obedience to him because if we can all there's one thing i think we could all admit if we're being honest is that there's so much that we don't know about god and there was so much to do that we are just getting started let's pray father we uh as we said before that We have our own issues. We have our own ideals. We have our own goals. And we drag those into our relationship with you. And Lord, first we thank you for the many chances you've given us to change. Lord, the instructions that you give us, the things that you put in our lives, the word that you've given us to to help us understand you. Lord, I pray that we would not take it for granted, but we would take advantage of the fact that, that you have communicated to us perfectly well. And it's now our job to listen to you. Father, I pray that we would listen well, that we would commit ourselves to deepening our relationship with you, to going further than ever before, Father, and that we would obey you when you correct us, that we would change our course, and that as we learn more about you, we would commit ourselves to submission to your will and to becoming more like your son, Jesus. We thank you again for your forgiveness, for your grace, and we know that you are the glorious one and we are not. You hear my prayer. Amen.